camping together. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be weird and crazy, but let's do it anyway. Okay. What's that? It is outdoors. It's a great question. You know, a lot of people around here wondering, is, are we really going outdoors? Yes, we are going to be outside. All right, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. All right, we are in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, word. We are opening our word, our Bibles, our swords. Uh, okay, so as you open to the scriptures or scroll there or flip there in your phone or whatever, um, don't stay at Facebook Bible app, okay? I'll know. Um, I want you to think to yourself right now of a least likely. Okay, I want you to have somebody in your mind who you would call a least likely. And what I mean by least likely, I mean the least likely person to become a follower of Jesus. Versus like, that's me, dog. This person may be an antagonist. Uh, I've known folks along the way where they're just antagonistic to people of the faith. They like to poke fun. They like to start arguments. They like to be instigators. Maybe that's the person that comes to your mind. Maybe this person doesn't even want to hear about it. Like you start to bring up Jesus, the church, or what you're doing this weekend or whatever. They're like, "Ah, I don't want to even hear about it. You're like, well, Jesus loves you. Oh, I don't want to hear it. Maybe this person is living a life that is so inconsistent with what you consider to be the Christian life, that you're like, there's no way that that person could become a believer. Well, this morning we have reached, as we turn back to the book of Acts, one of the most important chapters in my estimation and in others' estimation, one of the most important chapters as it relates to significant and consequential worldwide impact. And in through the life of a least likely. The church has already been birthed. We have witnessed that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit fell in power, and now the gospel has, has spread. We have, we have seen as a church, the, the church spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, even to the, the, the lengths of Africa. As we saw the last time we were together in Acts chapter 8, Philip, in evangelistic fervor and faithfulness, had a divine appointment on the old Gaza road where he led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. But somebody tell me, please, what was it that pushed the church out of Jerusalem. Persecution. persecution, that is absolutely correct. It was persecution that scattered the church. In fact, there's a, a particular name that is linked to that persecution. We've met him three times. In fact, today will be the third time we meet him in the narrative of the book of Acts, and his name is Saul. Okay, Saul. He was by far the most fervent and volatile adversaries of the early church. In fact, we meet him first in chapter 7. So hold your place at at chapter 9. Look over at chapter 7, specifically verse 58. This is the first time in the narrative of the book of Acts where we encounter Saul. Uh, It's his Hebrew name, his Greek name, Paul, Saulus Paulus. In verse 58 of chapter 7, the text says this, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Somebody please tell me who the him is in that statement. Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, he preached a very, very bold and biblical message and then pointed the finger at the religious elite and said, you killed, you murdered the Lord. 
He dragged him out of the city, clenched their teeth in anger, and while they were running out and dragging this man unjustly to death, they laid their coats down so as to free up their throwing arms at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here we are. We visit. We see this man. He is at the the site of the very first martyr uh, of the early church, and here he is. He's he's taking coats. He's a coat check. And then by chapter 8, I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 1, just in case we get the false idea that somehow Saul was there passively. No, he was actively in support. It says in verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of, Saul supported his execution. And there that day, that very day, when the first drops of martyr blood hit the soil, that is the day where a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem was unleashed. And the text says that they were all what? scattered. Okay, it's a very important, important word throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. That's an interesting note. Maybe they were afforded some level of protection in Jerusalem. We're never really told. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But look at verse 3, while they are mourning the death, Saul all the more was what? What is that word? ravaging another important word the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison so the early church through great persecution is scattered okay scattered that picture is the picture of somebody with a big bag of seed reaching in and taking a handful of seed and casting it to the wind okay so wherever the wind carried the seed that is where it landed that is where it planted they were scattered what did they take with them the gospel They may not have had anything as far as earthly possessions, but they had eternal wealth. They took the gospel with them. Wherever we go, we take the gospel with us. And so they were scattered wherever they landed. The gospel was planted. That is why we see the gospel go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and really to Africa and beyond as the the scriptures unfold. But it was Saul who was a part of this and really instigating this, this persecution. In fact, the text says that he was ravaging the church. It pictures a wild boar tearing up a vineyard. Okay, that is the picture of ravaging, like a wild-eyed animal he's set to destroy anyone who professed allegiance in Jesus. And what's crazy about this, which is just mind-boggling about this, is this guy actually thought he was doing God's work. I find it fascinating to me that there are times in the world that right now that people believe that they're doing God's work when they're destroying the church and they're destroying Christians and they're antagonizing the name of Jesus. They're like, oh, we're doing God's work. Oh, so deceived. And what's fascinating to me also is that Saul or Paul, however you want to call him, later on in life, he's going to look back with deep regret. And there are times, and you may be even there right now, where you feel so justified. You're like so right in hating that person. Maybe God's on your side. Maybe God hates that person too. Doesn't that make him easier to hate? And you come to realize later in life, oh, how wrong we were. And with deep and lamenting regret, we realize that antagonism, that hatred, that persecution we levied towards somebody else was just totally an error. Well, that's going to happen for Saul, young Saul. Look at Acts 9. 
A contrast, you see the contrasting conjunction, but Saul, that's contrasting the life of Philip and the life of Saul. While Philip in chapter 8 is sharing the gospel, Saul, on the other hand, is trying to destroy the gospel. He is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters uh, to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, found an interesting name of the church, men or women, young or old, he might bind them and carry them off to Jerusalem. And so here is his Saul. He's still breathing out like a fire-breathing dragon. Murderous threats. The picture is like a bull right before it strikes the matador. You know, it just, it's got its horns and it's stomping and kicking up dirt. That's the picture of Saul. And he goes to get letters which would give him authority and jurisdiction 150 miles to the north, to Damascus, to another outpost of of Jewish belief. And so he wanted to go to the synagogues to the north. Just as the gospel was spreading north, he wanted to get there first. Because he's starting to realize that the more he persecutes the local church in Jerusalem, the more it spreads. It's like blowing on the dandelion thinking you're killing it. (sighs) Well, I eradicated those weeds. No, just spread them. And so he's going to the north, and he gets these letters so that if he gets to D- Damascus and he finds anybody in the local synagogues, these are Jewish believers. He's looking for Jewish Christians. As he saw it as a distortion. He could eradicate them. He could kill or drag them back to Jerusalem. Can somebody, somebody who's just got a bold testimony, bold witness, that you're just, you're just bad. You can walk down the aisle and show me how Saul leaves Jerusalem. So someone give me a little strut. Come on, walk down the aisle real quick for us. Come with somebody. Stephen. Dude, how many of y'all want to see? All right, Michelle. That's how Saul's leaving. Dude, he is strutting, man. I knew I'd get one. He is strutting out of Jerusalem. He's got not only the authority of the high priest, he's got his entourage with him. They're like, yeah, you bad, Saul. He's like, I know. And he's walking out of Jerusalem. And he can't wait to get to Damascus so he can wreck shop on anybody who professes faith in Christ. And I, I find it interesting that the, the early church is described as the way. I find that interesting? The way. They're not called Christians yet. Not until chapter 11, the church of Antioch, do they become or call Christians. They're called the way. And I find that interesting because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They like connected to that. They're like, yeah, we're of the way. We're of Jesus. And he is the way, isn't he? We're a people of the way. We may look like everyone else in culture and in our community, but there's something inherently different about us, isn't it? We're walking a different path. We're going on the path of the way. And for some folks who have lost their way or some people who have no way, we're walking the way. And I, as I think about this, I'm like, Jesus is the way, isn't he? He, he? The way we walk out our life should speak of Christ. The way we live and move and breathe and have our being, the way we view the world. You know, there used to be there was a group of people that you could be justifiable in hating. You're like, oh, I don't have to love those people. I can kind of like those people. Those people are kind of acquaintances. But then all of a sudden you come to discover God loves who? And so we're supposed to love some people, right? Like, it can't be those people. can't love everybody. No, we're called to love the world, man. The way we view the world changes. The way we view traffic jams changes. This is a blessing from the Lord, right? That's how we all view it. Okay, the way we invest our time, talents, and treasure. Okay, we're not hoarders. We recognize that the gold of this earth is going to be pavement in heaven. We're not going to hoard up this stuff. We're going to invest it. We're going to lever it for something greater than just our retirement for, for kingdom purposes. 
the way we have relationships with one another, not tearing each other down or devouring or attacking one another, no, in harmony, in unity of the Spirit. The way we parent. Y'all, parenting's hard. The way we parent, it is hard to be a parent. There are times where we go to our kids and we're like, look, we blew it, man. But we're prayerfully leading you guys in the way. You know, my desire is that our kids could follow us in the foot, our footsteps and they could know, they, they know the way. We're like showing them the way. The way we work, I get it, man. We're climbing the corporate ladder one rung at a time. But you know what's crazy? We serve a Savior who descended the corporate ladder. He like intentionally went all the way down to the bottom, the ground floor, and made himself the lowliest of the lowly servants. How does that influence the way you work? How about the way we die? I will tell you, there is no more hopeless funeral than somebody who does not have a personal relationship or any hope beyond death. And I have sat with families, grieving families, as they grasp for some just like thread of hope that their loved one who's just been buried is a believer. They're like, well, we found a, we found a Bible. We found a little, a little uh, bookmark. It says this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And we're hoping they, they're, they're like, shine, I don't know. It's desperate, man. Give your family no doubt. Give them no doubt, man, that when you breathe your last, yeah, they love the Lord. Messy, yes. Love the Lord, absolutely. The way we die. I have sat bedside with believer and unbeliever, and I'll tell you, there's a distinct difference. I've sat with believers that they suffer in the throes of cancer, and they're, they're about ready to breathe their last, and they go, I'm going home. And then on the other end, I don't know where I'm going the way. And family, we live in such a way that we can show others the way. People who have no way or lost their way, we're like, this is the way. A people of the way. Well, this is the exact people that Saul was setting out to destroy. People like us of the way. And his mind, he was being very faithful to the Lord until he runs across the Lord, or the Lord runs across his path. He comes to discover he's incredibly wrong. Let's look at verse 3. The text says, now as he went on his way, Come on, y'all, you know how he's doing it. He's strutting. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Other passages tell us it's probably high noon. Okay, and then suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Okay, I want you to think, right as Saul is leaving Jerusalem, what is the likelihood you could walk up to him and go, hey, Saul, check this out. By the time you get back to Jerusalem, you're going to be a believer. In fact, you're, you're going to con- profess your faith in Christ, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to be baptized, and you're going to be preaching Jesus by the time you get back to Jerusalem. What do you think Saul's response would have been? Fat chance. See, he, there was no way that you could have argued him, you couldn't have manipulated him, you couldn't have browbeat him into believing. No, he needed a divine intervention. God had to intervene. And sometimes we think about the least likelies, and all we're thinking about is our capacity to reach them, our capacity to argue with them, our capacity to convince them, forgetting that the only way that they're going to come to faith is through a divine intervention. So what we need is a list of names that we pray over when we go, God, I cannot reach them in and of myself. Please intervene in their life where we pray for these least likelies that God would intervene, break in through time and space and penetrate that hardened heart to pray for God to reach them. Well, verse 3, it's exactly what happens. The light so bright, brighter than the sun. If you can imagine that, 
rendering him on his face. Sometimes I hear people talk about, oh, when I stand before God, I'm like, you misunderstand God. When we come into his presence, the only appropriate posture is prostrate. We are on our faces. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Emphatically, twice, his name, Saul, Saul, why are you attacking me? Why are you persecuting me? Sometimes I want to ask people that. Like, why are you so antagonistic towards the church and Christians and, and Jesus himself? Why are you persecuting? And I, I look how personal it is to the Lord. It's not just like, why are you attacking Christians? No, Jesus is like, you're attacking me? That when we persecute Christians or when we're persecuted, it's Jesus who is attacked. He feels that. And I love Saul's response. He said, who are you? Lord? God, is that you? The Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus the Lord. You are attacking me, Saul. What do you think Saul's thinking at that moment? Uh-oh. I'm a piece of bread and you're the toaster. I'm about to get cooked. Maybe he's expecting to, to be crushed, put to death. Maybe you are so convinced that your past is so terrible that the only thing God wants to do is destroy you. How wrong that perspective is. Verse 6, but rise. Not death, not crushed blinded, but rise, and you'll be told what you are to do. Can you believe it? God had plans for Saul beyond his, his failings. In fact, that's true of all of us. The text says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. There's some contradictory reports. It's like they don't know what's happening, but they can see a difference in Saul. Something just happened to Saul. They're not quite sure, but something happened. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Wow, what a picture. He's now groping, reaching. It's like that moment where you just can't see. Fearful. First time they saw fear on his face. Saw nothing. It's a picture of his spiritual condition, right? He was blind, even though he saw. And now he's physically blind, and he's about to see. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. I mean, think about the difference of how he left Jerusalem and then how he entered into Damascus. He left like a fire-breathing dragon. He enters like a child. Look at uh, this quote here from William Barclay. I love this. He who had intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury was led into the city blind and helpless as a child. Oh, humbled. R.C. Sproul, he writes this, I cannot help but wonder whether the Christian community had their spies and whether the word had already spread throughout Damascus. That fire-breathing Saul is on his way. He's just a little bit outside the city. Perhaps a sense of terror and fear had gripped the Christians of Damascus. That is until they saw him being led by the hand, blind into the city. You can imagine they were like, that's a little weird, right? That's the strangest way to start a persecution we've ever seen. You're trying to lull us into, I don't know, feeling sorry for it? I don't know. What's he doing? How he enters Damascus, you know, it's just lowly. Well, the narrative... He's going to shift. He spends three days blind. 
pretty dark time for Saul. Wow, imagine what was going through his mind in that quietness. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's profoundly quiet. Well, the narrative shifts from Saul to then another servant as the Lord's attention shifts from Saul to this other servant. Verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, you'll notice one, one time. This is a disciple. This is a servant. This is someone who's under the authority and lordship of Christ. So when he hears his name, he simply responds with, Here I am, Lord. Isn't that a great picture for us as, as believers, as servants of the Lord? That when he calls us by name, here we are, Lord. In, in essence, here I am, send me. And then the Lord is going to give him his commissioning, what he is supposed to do as a chosen instrument. And he's like, oh, hold on a second. Uh, that doesn't make much sense. Verse 11. Rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, that street still cuts through the center of ancient Damascus. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him and so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias is like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I know that guy. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus? Wait, wait. There, he must be seeing another Ananias in his vision because it ain't me. I'm trying to avoid that guy. I'm not going out to find him. And I love it how Ananias is going to fill the Lord in like he doesn't have all the info. You ever do that? Like God calls you to do something, you're like, uh, hold on, Lord, you probably don't know this. <laughs> right? Like there's no way you know about that. Because if you knew about that, there's no way you'd tell me to do this. I love Ananias' response, verse 13. And he answered, Lord, um, <clears throat> I've heard from a lot of people about this guy. And much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You probably didn't know that. Just wanted to fill you in real quick. You probably still don't want me to go, right? Like, I, I can go back to hiding. I mean, think about this. I quote here from John Stott, to go to Saul would be tantamount to giving himself up to the police. It was suicidal. There's times when God will tell us to undertake a plan that seems flawed. We don't have all the facts. We often forget that God does the impossible, the unthinkable, the unfathomable. It just doesn't make sense to us. And in our human estimation and understanding, there is absolutely no way that we're going to fully grasp the purposes and plans and will of God. Ananias had no idea how significantly Saul would be used for kingdom purposes. There's no way he could have. All he saw was a tyrant. Family, we got to stop looking at people the way they are. And we got to start having eyes of faith to boldly believe what they can become through a radical transformation, transformation in Jesus Christ. Jesus does change everything. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, nope, I'm not mistaken. I know who the guy is. Sometimes you're like, you probably don't know this, Lord. <laughs> no, I get it. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Gosh, this is so significant. Family, sometimes we get this erroneous idea that we choose Jesus. This is not the case. There is no way that Saul would have chosen Jesus. He was trying to eradicate Jesus. Okay, this, through this divine appointment, God is showing us he chooses. He is divinely choosing Saul. He's divinely chosen you. He has a purpose for you. And not just as a, as a person who is going to be saved. Sometimes we think that the, the sum total of God's purpose and will is just to get us saved. 
You're called as a chosen instrument. Okay, that means you have a purpose, an instrument. Another way to describe that is a tool. Okay, a chosen tool for a divine purpose. Let me illustrate it this way. This last week, I was changing out the air filter in the family minivan, which has a really strange aroma since we got done from our, our trip. I can't get it. Any of you have any ideas about how to fumigate a van? Let me know. Anyway, so we're changing out the air filter, and uh, the only tool I can find is a crescent wrench, which is the most uh, promising tool, most underliving tool in a toolbox. If you all understand what I'm talking about, just say amen. A crescent wrench, it's one of these things that you can open it and close it, and it's like different sizes, but it never, ever stays at the size you need it to, and it's almost impossible to use it the way it's intended to be used. And so I finally went and got a socket. That's exactly what I need, a socket wrench, and it fit the, the, the bolt perfectly, and I was able to take it off. And it, it's a great picture because, see, God had a divine purpose. It was a very specific purpose, and he needed a very specific tool. And so he reaches into the toolbox, and he pulls out Saul. For a very specific purpose, to reach the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And while we look at that and we, well, that's a very specific and unique calling. Maybe that has no application in my life. No, no, no. God is constantly reaching into his toolbox, and each one of us are one of his tools for a divine purpose. So I want you to look at your neighbor and go, you're a tool. Some of you are like, maybe he doesn't know what that means. No, you were a tool, man. We've redeemed that. So you're free to walk around and tell anybody a tool you want. You're a tool, man. I go, you're a tool too. We are, we are, aren't we? We're instruments for his purposes, his divine use. I love this. He reaches in and selects a specific tool. Ananias was being used as a tool. You know, he's being used to reach Saul. There's no small part in this. Verse 16, he says, For I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Not only has he chosen to do incredible things, take the name of, of Jesus to the Gentiles and to the kings and to all the people of Israel, but he is going to suffer. It's part of his calling. We don't really like that idea of being called to suffer, so we'll move on. Verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house. He obeyed. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, you see, there's no room for antagonism. There's no room for hatred. You can't carry hatred into your faith. He doesn't lay his hands on Saul and say, You tyrant! You murderer! You wicked man! He says, Brother, we're now family. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight, not to curse, but to bless and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and he was baptized. Saul is baptized. Taking food, he strengthened. Wow places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is baptized. He eats a meal for the first time as a believer. Saul is now a Christian. Family, he is the greatest example of the least likely in all of history. He is now a believer. This ravaging animal, this persecutor, this murderer is now a Christ follower. Will wonders never cease? 
So here's some applications for us this morning. The first one is the least likelies. Oh, it's just so easy, isn't it, just to write people off. We're so quick and so prone to do that, as if somehow we have the ability to look into the heart of God and look into someone's future and go, ah, they're destined for nothing. They're not going to do anything important. As if we can understand his will and his purpose for another person, we have no idea who God will reach and how profoundly they'll be changed and how profoundly the world will be changed in and through them. Ananias had no idea. But think about this. Talk about being profoundly used. Ananias led Paul to Christ. We all have our eyes set on something great. Sometimes the greatest thing we can do is just simply be used. Sometimes we're like Ananias. We're like, there's no way. And you know what? If you met me 16 years ago, You'd look at me, you'd go, there's no way. That guy's at least likely. There's no way. In fact, this uh, past uh, trip this, to San Diego, I ran into a guy at In-N-Out, which, by the way, is the most anointed burger chain in the United States. and Double-double animal style. It's all right. You all just, you know what, let's pray that your scales will fall. But... Um, I walk in, and this dude is oh, so crazy. A good friend of mine from back in the day, we ran into each other. He's like, oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you. Oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you. It's so crazy. And we were wild. We were wild. And uh, we start laughing because he is now married. He has a son, and he travels uh, playing in worship bands. And he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, this is my wonderful wife. These are all my, he's all, these are all yours? I was like, no, we didn't rate a preschool. These are, these are all ours. Uh, elementary school, sorry. And uh, he's like, wow, five sons. I was like, I know, it's crazy. And he's like, you're a pastor? I'm like, I know, that's crazy, right? And he's like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. You lead worship and we're, we're a couple of the least likely just laughing. Like, look what God has done. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, me too. I'm a least likely. And family, don't write anybody off. Don't check anybody off that list to say there's no way God can use them. God is in the business of taking the least likelies and doing incredible things. And you may be sitting here thinking, I'm, I've done so much dirt. I am so messy. I'm so jacked. My history, you have no idea. And I'm like, wow, you have no idea. God loves taking the messy and the broken and the real and just doing incredible things through them. He's just, he loves to confound the wise that way. Beautiful mess pray you're profoundly impacted in greater faith of what God can and do in and through you. The least likely. Secondly, your Damascus Road experience. Some of us may be like, well, I, you know, I don't know if I ever had a Damascus Road experience. And there's some aspects of this that are kind of unique. Don't expect like a bright shining light to envelop you and a voice from heaven. Because that's not the typical. Really, that was the specific call, and we'll see why Saul was approached that way as, a, as the last of the apostles. But it, it is kind of a common picture, right? There is a moment where we go and realize, wow, how wrong I've been. Wow, I've rejected Jesus. I have not believed in him. I, I have not believed in God. I have, I have viewed the world and myself and God totally inaccurately, in, in and now I turn towards him in faith. That is a Damascus turning. And so the question is, when is it that you turned and came to realize that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world? He's not just the Savior of the world, He's the Savior of your life, and you need a Savior. 
that he truly is the Lord, that he did die for your sins, he was buried, and he did rise from the dead, and the only way to have eternal life is in, is in Jesus. When was the day that you turned to him and said, Lord Jesus, I have, I have believed a lie, and I want to trust you, I believe in you. That is a Damascus turning. And some of you are like, well, I was pretty young when that happened. That doesn't minimize it. But some of you have never had that turning. And I want to encourage you today to chew on that, meditate on that, and we'll return to it. And then finally, just for fun, you can walk out of here saying, hey, we're all tools. Um, That's, of course, a funny way to recognize that each one of us are chosen by God, okay, for a specific purpose. There is a purpose on your life. There's a reason why you exist. You know, the greatest joy is discovering that and walking in it, not just purpose, but purposes. Every single day is another day that you get to discover more and more of what your purpose is here on this earth. And don't always have, it doesn't always have to be some grandiose purpose. Being a servant is an incredible honor. Just, God, use me. I want to be used. I want to be a valuable tool for a specific purpose. How many of you have that heart? You want to be used by God? Come on. Lord, use us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desire to be used by you. We want to be a a chosen instrument. And Lord, as your word declares, if we have a relationship, we are chosen. And you have a purpose for us. And it's not just to sit in a chair and be saved. You have a purpose for us to share your love with the world. There are people, there are circumstances and situations that we each individually are called to. Here we are, Lord. If you're here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, there's no Damascus road in your life. There's no place in time where you've turned to Christ. Let it be today. Jesus died for your sins. He is buried and he's risen. He is the Lord. And the Bible declares that all who turn to him, all who believe in him will be saved. You need to be saved, friend. The quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. I believe. If that is your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life. Holy Spirit has come to fill your heart. You are forever a son or daughter of God. Profound stuff. So, Lord, we're preparing ourselves to go back out into the world. It's a scary place, Lord. Give us greater faith. Let us be light and salt. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, stand together. Oh, it's so good. Another thing I told my friend in California, I told him all about you guys. I was like, oh, they're the best. I can't wait to be back. It's so good to be back with the family. Well, now it's time to go. Okay, so go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, you are love. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world, Get a t-shirt that says that you were loved. Have a great week.